invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to Hebrews chapter 11. This is almost becoming a little mini-series in Hebrews 11 within our larger series of the book of Hebrews as we have been considering what faith in action looks like. This morning we come now to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, although I won't actually get to verse 28, but I'll still read it for you. But before we hear God's word in Hebrews 11, let us once again call upon our God and ask for his grace and mercy to be upon us as we hear his word. Our God and Father, we bless you this morning as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before you. Oh, in love you predestined us for adoption to yourself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of your will, to the praise of your glorious grace in which you have blessed us in the beloved. And I pray that as we hear and meditate upon your word this morning, that you would bless us once again in the beloved, that you would calm our fears, that you would heal our wounds, that you would forgive our sins as we look once again to Jesus Christ, our only Savior and our only Lord. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. We read, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of our God. How many of you have ever felt afraid? I want you to actually raise your hands. How many of you have ever felt afraid? Kids, if you look around, you would see that every single person in this room is raising their hand. And if someone isn't raising their hand, it just means they are lying or more likely they're not actually listening yet. Everyone feels afraid at some time or another. Kids, did you know that even 
King David felt afraid. Do you remember King David? This is the guy who was so brave that he fought the giant Goliath when everyone else was too scared to go out and meet his challenge. This is the guy people wrote songs about singing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. King David was a mighty warrior and the greatest king Israel ever knew. Yet even David felt scared. How do I know that? I know that because one time when David was captured by Philistines, he wrote a song which we know as Psalm 56. And in verse 3, he says, when I am afraid, not if I was afraid, when I am afraid. Fear for David was not a hypothetical question. It was an experienced reality. David felt fear. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't, because all of God's people feel afraid sometimes. We all get scared. Fear is a universal experience, even for the faithful, for those who live by faith in God. So our list of faithful heroes here in chapter 11 includes some people who felt afraid, which was important for the Hebrew Christians receiving this letter to understand and learn from. For you'll remember that the author is writing this letter. He's, he's writing this sermon because the Hebrews, at least some of them, were in danger of committing apostasy, which means they were in danger of forsaking faith in Jesus Christ and walking away from faithful obedience to God. They were tempted to just give up on Christianity. Why? Well, for at least some of them, it was because they were afraid. They were afraid because it can be hard to follow Jesus. And they had suffered because they followed Jesus. They endured a hard struggle, the author tells us in chapter 10. They were afflicted, persecuted, imprisoned, and plundered because they put their faith in Jesus. And so some of them were scared. They were scared that if they kept putting their faith in Jesus, they would keep suffering, maybe even more than they had before. And so their fear tempted them to shrink back, to run away from faithful obedience and hide in unbelief. Which is why the author of Hebrews is not only exhorting them, he is encouraging them, saying, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, he's saying, Christians don't give in to fear and give up faith in God. 
Instead, they keep obediently moving forward. So in chapter 11, he has been offering us several examples of what this faith in action, faith in practice looks like. These examples have included men before the flood, like Abel, Enoch, and Noah. This has included examples in the patriarchal period, especially of Abraham and his family. And with these examples, these men and women we've seen have constantly lived forward because they looked forward, not knowing what was going to happen in the future, but knowing the God who determines the future and trusting his word. For faith in action, we have learned, is holding on to and seeing a hoped-for yet currently unseen reality. More succinctly, faith in action lives forward because it looks forward, trusting God and His Word. But what about when living by faith is scary. What about if you feel afraid? Does feeling afraid mean you don't have faith anymore? In other words, is faith in action the same thing as fearlessness? Because maybe some of you feel embarrassed or ashamed or discouraged thinking, if I actually had faith, I wouldn't feel so afraid. If I really believed what the Bible says, I would never get scared. Maybe your fear makes you question your faith as if fear is automatically disqualifying from the life of faith. If you've ever felt that way, I want you to listen very carefully this morning. Because my aim this morning is to convince you that faith in action is not actually the same thing as fearlessness, as if you can only live by faith if you never feel fear. But I want you to see that faith in action is moving forward in obedience even when you feel afraid. In other words, the question of faithfulness is not how are you feeling right now? The question of faithfulness is what are you going to do regardless of how you're feeling right now? So I'm not primarily discussing this morning right fear versus wrong fear or what you should or can do to deal with fear and anxiety. Feelings matter. Feelings can be sinful. Feelings must be sanctified. But as I've been arguing, Hebrews 11 is not as much about what you should or shouldn't feel as it is about what you should or shouldn't do. Like David in Psalm 56, therefore, I'm not analyzing why you feel afraid or whether you should feel afraid. I'm simply dealing with the reality of being afraid and what you do when you are afraid. So my question is essentially, how can you still act in faith even when you feel afraid, which assumes you can still act in faith even when you feel afraid? 
So here are four points to help you understand that faith in action is not fearlessness. It is overcoming your fear. And the first point is simply this. The faith, the faithful still feel fear. If we all had perfect faith, then yes, we would only fear God and nothing else. But no one on this earth has perfect faith. And God doesn't actually require perfect faith. He requires faith in the perfect one. So whether or not you are faithful is not determined by whether or not you feel afraid. And I want to show you that from this text because it may not be obvious to you at first. In his list of examples, the author is now moving from the patriarchal period of history to the mosaic period, which is what holds verses 23 all the way to 31 together. It encompasses the birth of Moses to the beginning of the conquest in Canaan, which happens soon after the death of Moses. So we begin with the birth of Moses, which provides another example of faith in action, but it's not actually Moses's faith in action. In this instance, Moses receives something. He's not actually the one who's acting in faith. It is his parents who are acting in faith. In verse 23, Moses' parents hide Moses because it says they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, I admit, on the surface, that seems to blow up my point right off the bat. Pastor, <laughs> clear as day. Don't have to be a great reader. See, it says they were not afraid. So how can you be arguing from this text that the faithful still feel fear? Let me try to show you. When the author says they were not afraid of the king's edict, he does not mean they didn't feel fear and just didn't care what happened to them or to their son. How do we know that? Because it says they hid the child. If they weren't at all afraid of the king's edict and what he might do if he found Moses, they wouldn't hide the baby. They would just walk out and say, we aren't scared of you, Mr. Pharaoh. See, we still have our baby boy. But faith isn't foolishness. Faith isn't saying, I believe in God, and so I never take any precautions in life. If I take precautions in life, that means I don't have faith. No, that just means you're not very intelligent. Don't confuse faith with foolishness. They hid their baby because they knew if Pharaoh found their baby, their baby would die and they would die. So why did they have to hide Moses? What was this edict? Well, if you recall from Exodus chapter 1, in those days, the Israelites who were living in Egypt were becoming so numerous in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that Pharaoh was getting scared. Thought, if, if this Israelite population keeps growing, they're going to be too strong for us. They're going to side with our enemies, and they are going to conquer Egypt. 
So at first, Pharaoh commands the midwives, those who would go to help Israelite mothers have babies. He commands them, you need to kill any baby boy who is born because it's the boys who are going to grow up to be soldiers. So if there's any baby boys, midwives, you kill them on sight. But we're told that these midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, so they didn't do it. So then Pharaoh makes an edict, a law, that every boy born to the Israelites was to be drowned in the Nile River. So the parents, they have a son, their first step, they were commanded, they needed to go toss that baby in the Nile River. Have you ever wondered why? One of the first plagues is that the Nile is turned into blood. The Nile River was to be a source of life. Rivers were sources of life. And Pharaoh turned it into a source of death. And so the Lord said, you, you, you want to kill my babies? You want this river to be a river of blood? I'll make it a river of blood. Don't you think for one second God will ever overlook when we kill our children? May the Lord have mercy on our nation. It's coming. Judgment always comes when we act in that kind of way. Israelite parents, therefore, had a choice. They could kill their sons and save their own lives, or they could try to save their sons and most likely lose their own lives. Moses' parents chose to save their son. They did not cast baby Moses into the Nile, but they hid him for three months and then eventually made a basket to float him on the Nile to safety, since eventually he'd be too big for them to hide. And in this sense, they did not fear the king's edict. It doesn't mean they were fearless as if they didn't ever feel afraid. It means they didn't obey their fear. They didn't act in fear, even when they felt fear. So not being afraid here speaks to their actions. He's not telling us about their feelings. Now skip over to verse 27. In verses 24 through 26, which I'll come back to, the author now recounts the story of when Moses saved an Israelite by killing the Egyptian who was beating him. That's what the author's describing in verses 24 through 26, saying when Moses made this choice, this choice was an action which was evidenced by him saving a Hebrew and killing an Egyptian. We know that's what this author is talking about because the phrase, when he was grown up, is the same phrase that introduces that story back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. So we read in verse 27, which begins, by faith he left Egypt. This we now know is referring to when Moses fled Egypt after Pharaoh found out that he had killed an Egyptian. And it says, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. And again, this may seem to contradict my point. But flip over to Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, if you want to see this. 
For when Moses learns that there were eyewitnesses to his action and that his actions were going to be found out, we read in Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, then Moses was afraid and thought Pharaoh's going to find this out. I'm summarizing now. I'm, I'm not quoting. It says he was afraid. Because he knew that Moses was going to find out. It says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So Moses, who wrote Exodus, says, guys, when I found this out, I was scared. I, I felt afraid. How then do we reconcile these two accounts without being intellectually lazy and just concluding, well, the Bible contradicts itself, or by trying to do exegetical gymnastics to make Hebrews 11.27 refer to a different episode in Moses' life, as some commentators try to do? Well, we reconcile this by again recognizing that the author of Hebrews is not talking about how Moses felt. He's talking about what Moses did. And when he fled Egypt, his primary motivation was not fear for his life, although that was certainly part of it. Faith and fear do often coexist in the same person. But his primary motivation was faith in God. So again, he was not obeying his fear. He was obeying his God, seeing him who is invisible, as it says in verse 27. Again, I'll come back to this, but I simply want you to see that the point of Hebrews is not that Moses and his parents never felt fear. It's that they did not act according to their fear. They acted in obedience to God. They felt fear. They acted in faith. Therefore, faithfulness is not fearlessness. The faithful still feel fear. And I'll just give you one more quick example. Not getting to verse 29 this week, but if you jump to verse 29, it says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. So the Israelites crossed the Red Sea by faith, but not without fear. We know that because... Moses says in Exodus 14 that as they looked back at the Egyptians chasing them and looked forward at the sea in front of them, it says they feared greatly. They weren't just a little bit scared. They were a lot scared. And yet when God said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to go forward, they went forward. So they crossed by faith even though they felt fear, because the faithful still feel fear. So if faithfulness is not fearlessness, what is it? Well, this brings me to point number two. The faithful obey even when afraid. Faithfulness is not fearlessness. It's obeying God instead of your fears. It's letting God's word dictate your life and not your own feelings. Again, feelings matter. 
I've preached other sermons on feelings and anxieties and how to deal with them. This just isn't one of those sermons. What I want you to see is that there always comes a point when you are simply faced with a choice and you must choose. Am I going to listen to God's word or am I going to listen to my fears? And this is why I find Psalm 56 verse 3 so helpful because David does not waste his time in Psalm 56 analyzing, why do I feel afraid? Should I feel afraid? Is this coming from a good place or a bad place? Is this wrong fear? Is this right fear? There are times to consider those things. But at the end of the day, you can't always control what feelings rise up within you when certain circumstances befall you. Now, God will sanctify even your feelings and reactions to circumstances, but he does this slowly over time. In the meantime, therefore, you simply need to learn how am I going to respond when I feel or react certain ways? So David doesn't spend time beating himself up and lamenting that he feels afraid, chastising himself. If I just had more faith, I wouldn't feel scared. He simply says, when I am afraid, this is what I choose to do. So again, you may be embarrassed or ashamed by how afraid you get. You may get discouraged that your progress is slow. But brothers and sisters, don't forfeit the battle before it's already begun. Do not spend all your time lamenting that you feel afraid. Instead, determine, all right, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? Now, I'm intentionally omitting the second half of Psalm 56.3 at this point. But I, if you read the psalm, you'll notice in verse 4 that David goes on to say, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Now again, you have to understand, that is not a declaration, I won't feel fear, because he's just said he feels fear. He's determining when he says, I shall not be afraid, that's not what's going to determine my actions. So we see in Psalm 56 something similar to what we see in Hebrews 11, that when it talks about not being afraid, it's talking about how are you going to act. Moses' parents were afraid, but they still hid Moses. Moses was afraid, but he still left Egypt. The Israelites were afraid, they still crossed the Red Sea. They obeyed their God in fear instead of making fear their God. That's the question, that's the choice you and I have to determine. What are we going to do when inevitably we feel afraid? Whom will we obey? You can't always choose how you feel, but you can always choose how you respond to those feelings. Feelings aren't neutral. How you respond to them isn't neutral. But how you respond matters. The faithful still feel fear, but they obey even when afraid. How do they do that? Why do they do that? This brings us to point number three. 
see that the faithful still feel fear, but they obey even when afraid because the faithful look to a greater fear. If you look at your outlines in your bulletin, you'll notice that I have fear capitalized. And that's on purpose. It's because this greater fear is God himself. We are commanded to fear God alone. And to fear God is to love him, to worship him, to trust him, to obey him, because you take him seriously and you believe he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. So to fear God is to give your whole life to God and say, I'm following him. In one sense, then, your fear is your God. And so it's quite fitting that when Jacob makes a formal agreement with his uncle Laban and he swears an oath, it says, Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now, there's only one name you swear by, and that is the name of the Lord, which means one of the names of the Lord we find in the Bible is fear. God is the fear of Isaac because Isaac feared God, and God's word is what dictated Isaac's life. You, your fear is your God, and so you must make God your fear. And so I ask you, is God your fear? You see, I, I don't actually believe the most effective way to fight fear and anxiety is to spend your time rationalizing all of your worldly fears in an attempt to, to shrink them down. You try to just convince yourself they're, they're not as scary as I think they are. They're not as big of a deal as I think they are. Because honestly, you can't rationalize fear away. Fear is, in one sense, irrational. It, it can be very rational, but it can also, at times, you just have fears, and no matter what anybody says, doesn't make you feel any better. Now, I do believe there are many ways to practically fight against and deal with fear and anxiety, but the most effective way to fight fear has nothing to do with directly addressing your fears. If you want to fight fear, do not spend all of your time looking at and analyzing what you're afraid of. Spend the vast majority of your time looking to your God and working to better understand exactly who he is. Fight for your fear in God to grow bigger. And only then will your worldly fears grow smaller. Not because they're actually getting smaller, but because now you are seeing them in perspective compared to God. For example, if you've ever driven through the Appalachian Mountains, when you drive through them, they're big, right? I mean, I haven't seen all that much in my life. I've seen the Appalachians. They look pretty big to me. But if you ever go to the Alps or the Himalayas, the Appalachians don't look so big to you anymore. Now, the Appalachian Mountains haven't changed in size. What's changed? 
your perspective has changed. And the Appalachians compared to the Himalayas aren't so as not, they're, they're, not, they're not as intimidating as they were before. before. My brother-in-law lives in Oregon, and he loves to rub it in by sending pictures all the time of Mount Rainier, which he can see from his window. It really ticks me off. I can't see anything cool from my window. And he's got this mountain that he sees every morning he wakes up. And I swear the first thing he does is, I'm going to send this view to, to Neil again. He wants me to plant a church out in Oregon, but I'm not going there. But he keeps trying to tempt me with these pictures. He wouldn't come to my church because he's a Baptist, but he still wants me to do it. And so that picture of Mount Rainier looks pretty impressive. But then I go online and I look up Mount Everest, just to put it in perspective again. Mount Rainier hasn't changed in size, but my perspective has. Worldly fears can be large and terrifying, and you cannot in your mind most of the time make them smaller than they are. They are big and scary. But what you can do is see God more clearly and accurately and thereby put all those big scary things into perspective. When viewed alone, your fears look massive. When viewed next to Almighty God, they start to look a little more minuscule. So don't labor so hard to shrink the vision of your fears. Labor to grow your vision of God. Place your faith in the greater fear, which will help you act in faith. So my, my youngest daughter and I often have this conversation about bravery. And she tells me, Dad, I, I'm not brave because I feel really scared. And I keep trying to convince her, sweetie, you can't. Be brave if you don't actually feel scared. Bravery is not the absence of fear. Bravery is saying, I feel afraid and I'm still going to do what I know I am supposed to do. And true bravery will only become as you behold your God. And this is how Moses' parents acted in faith. They didn't obey the king's edict, even though they certainly feared for their lives and the life of their son. But they didn't obey the king's edict because they feared a greater king. For notice that before it says they hid the child because they were not afraid of the king's edict, it says they hid the child for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean Moses' parents only saved his life because they thought he was a cute baby. And if they didn't think he was a cute baby, if they thought he was ugly or diseased or deformed, then they would have chucked him in the Nile. It's not what it means. The Greek word connotes general approval, refinement, or attractiveness. There was something unusually striking about his appearance. The Hebrew of Exodus 2.2 literally reads, she saw him, that's his mother, that he was good. And I think there's two realities being communicated. 
First, in the Hebrew, it says she saw him that he was good, harkens back to creation, noting God's good creation. When he looked upon all that he had made, it was very good. And, and so it's impressing upon us again, Moses was made in the image of God. I think of Psalm 139, verse 14, where it says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So Moses' parents were struck by this reality once again. But I believe there's more. Because the Greek word for beautiful really does, I think, communicate something supernaturally striking about Moses. It's as if God made clear to Moses' parents through his appearance that not only was Moses a good and wonderful creation, but that God had a good and wonderful purpose for this baby. He's saying, I, I'm going to make you see my electing favor upon this child so you understand how much I want him to live. They could see him as God saw him. For it's quite telling in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen preaches and he's recounting Israel's history, he talks about the exact same event. And he says, at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. He was beautiful in God's sight. And so God helped his parents see that beauty. And they understood, therefore, that God had a plan and purpose for Moses, which means they had a choice. It was very clear. King Pharaoh wants this baby dead. God has made it equally clear. I want him alive. Whom would they fear? Whom would they obey? They obeyed God as their greater fear. Their fear of God put their fear of Pharaoh into its proper perspective. And like his parents, Moses fled Egypt, seeing him who is invisible. That's not talking about the event with the burning bush. This is describing Moses' habitual way of life. Everything he did, he it was as if by faith he was seeing the invisible God and saying, I'm, I'm following him. And so he left all he knew in Egypt. Yes, fearing for his life, but even more so fearing his God. Christian, your fears are big. God's just a lot bigger. Your fears really are strong. God is just a whole lot stronger. So spend your energy looking to God and making him your great fear for the faithful look to a greater fear. And fourth and finally, the faithful who still feel fear obey when afraid because they not only are looking to a greater fear, they are looking to a greater reward. The faithful look to a greater reward. So we finally come to verses 24 through 26 
And she says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. When Moses' parents couldn't hide him anymore because he was getting too big, they made a basket, they put Moses in it, and they floated him down the Nile. And by God's loving providence, Pharaoh's daughter found him and took him as her own son. Now, many have speculated that the language in Exodus chapter 2, which says Moses became her son, is implying a formal adoption and perhaps even that Moses was now the heir to the throne in Egypt. And if that's true, then the author of Hebrews is not using hyperbole when he refers to the treasures of Egypt. Moses could have had it all. So when Moses saw his people languishing under heavy burdens, and when he saw a Hebrew, one of his people, as Exodus 2 explains, he now had a choice. Did he keep identifying as the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Did he keep identifying as an Egyptian and receive all that Egypt had to offer? Or did he identify with his people, lose everything, and enter into their suffering? Well, when he struck down the Egyptian, he made his choice. And understanding what Hebrews 11 is describing, this event, I think should help you understand how we are to view what Moses did. I've heard a lot of people talk about Exodus 2 and Moses killing the Egyptian. Is Here's evidence of Moses was a murderer. Here's one of the really bad things he did, and God used him anyway. Yeah, God uses sinners. That, that's true. We all do a lot of bad things. Hebrews 11 does not view that as a bad thing. Viewed it as Moses did what was right. He acted by faith in going to defend that Hebrew who was being beaten. He had already settled in his heart, though, that he would rather be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, why? Why would he choose to be mistreated instead of choosing pleasure? It says, because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, the reproach of Christ may be an allusion to the Greek translation of Psalm 89, which says at one point, Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, which I have borne in my breast for many nations, which your enemies, O Lord, have reproached me, with which they have reproached your anointed one by way of recompense. So we know in the unfolding of history that God calls Israel his son. Jesus comes as the anointed, the son of God. He enters into the suffering of his people. He bears their reproach. And in this way, to save this Hebrew from the Egyptian, Moses ultimately had to forsake everything. He had to give up his throne and wealth to live in the wilderness for 40 years. Because when he takes this act, but when he makes this act, he cannot stay in Egypt anymore. And so in this way, he is a type of Christ who emptied himself, who left his heavenly throne to live in the wilderness of earth to save his people. 
but to identify with Christ's people, which was ultimately to identify with Christ, though he didn't yet understand who Christ would be, Moses was choosing a greater wealth. Because Moses knew the Abrahamic promises. He knew what God promised to Israel, and he knew those promises were for the people of Israel, not the people of Egypt. And he understood God and his promises are much greater than everything that Egypt can offer me. And so you have to understand that Christianity is not hatred and rejection of pleasure, treasure, and rewards, as if Christians deny themselves for the sake of self-denial, and we just like being miserable, unhappy people. You want to be a Christian? We'll just hate everything that's nice and happy and just be miserable and you're a good Christian. That's not Christianity. Christians don't despise joy, happiness, and good things. Actually, we become Christians by God's grace because we want the best, we want the most, and we want the longest lasting pleasures and treasures. Worldliness does offer pleasure and a kind of treasure. If sin wasn't pleasurable, none of us would be tempted to it. But as it is with fear, the way to fight the pleasures of sin is not to pretend they're less pleasurable than they are. Christians are not pleasure minimalists. The way to fight the fleeting pleasures of sin is to find a greater, everlasting pleasure, which will put the pleasures of sin into proper perspective. See, Christians are actually pleasure seekers. We're treasure hunters. We just don't care about the smaller, lesser, temporary pleasures and treasures of this world. Do we have to suffer to get this treasure? Yes. Is it worth it? You better believe it. Christians may look foolish to the world, but we're not fools. It's, it's like investing money. You can hold on to every dollar that you earn so you can spend it whatever you want, but you probably won't be able to afford everything that you want. When you invest your money, yes, you have less now, but you're going to have more later. Christianity is just wise investing. Or imagine if someone comes to you, kids, I would never do this because I couldn't back it up, but imagine if I came to you and said, I will give you $500 today. You can spend it on whatever you want. You can get comic books, you can get toys, you can get whatever it is you want. I will give you $500 right now. Or I will give you nothing now, but in a year from now, I'll give you $5 billion. Now, I don't have $5 billion, but God owns all the, the cattle on all the hills. He, he owns everything. When we sin, when we keep persisting in a life of unbelief, every day we're saying, I want the $500 now. That is not a wise choice. You're going to forsake $5 billion for 500 Again, I, I, I may be the pastor that uses the word stupid more than any other pastor. But that's stupid. Don't do it. Moses was looking to the greater reward because that's what Christians do. We want more, not less. We want eternal, not temporary. We want Christ. 
not this world. So to fight the fleeting pleasures of sin, you need to find a greater pleasure, and that pleasure is Christ and all that is in him. That's why we're told to taste and see that the Lord is good. If you don't want to be satisfied with McDonald's, go eat a really good gourmet burger. If you don't want to be satisfied with splashing around in puddles, go swim in the ocean. If you don't want to be satisfied with sin, go find the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't settle. Don't snack on junk food when the best feast you can imagine is waiting for you. For God is a greater fear and God is a greater reward. So Christians, there are times when you will feel afraid as you live by faith. And the question is not whether or not you should feel fear. The question is, what are you going to do when you're afraid? And may I commend Moses and his parents to you. When you are afraid, obey. Looking to a greater fear and a greater reward. For faith and action is not fearlessness. It is overcoming fear. Which is why I love the way David puts it in Psalm 56, verse 3. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I have spent hours awake at night just saying that verse over to myself again and again and again. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. David couldn't always help how he felt, but he could choose how he would respond to those feelings. And he chose to put his trust in God. We don't trust God naturally. We have to do it intentionally. Moses' parents had to choose to fear God above Pharaoh. Moses had to choose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. When you are afraid, and you will be afraid, put your trust in God. For he is a greater fear, and he is a far greater reward. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we really aren't able to do this naturally. And so I pray that you would help each and every one of us right now. I pray that if there are any here in this room that have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ at all, who continue to follow lesser fears and seek lesser rewards, would you at this very moment open the eyes of their hearts to see the glory of Jesus Christ, to see that he is beautiful beyond compare. And I pray for those of us who are seeking by your grace to walk by faith, would you give us strength to keep moving forward as we keep looking forward, trusting in you and in your word. Make yourself greater in our eyes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.